I'm Reva Stout, and you're listening to A Therapist Can't Say That. Subsequent therapist syndrome. This is a juicy one, right? So as a reminder of the terms we're using here, subsequent therapist syndrome is a term coined by Dr. Ofer Zor, who I interviewed in my last episode, to describe the phenomenon in which a therapy client makes a licensing board complaint against a prior therapist they've had based on the advice or encouragement of their new therapist. And Dr. Zor's estimation was that at least 50% of board complaints involve the subsequent therapist in some way, where they are initiating or encouraging the client to initiate a board complaint against their past therapist. And I think he made it clear in our interview that we are not just talking about complaints against therapists in cases where there is egregious, obvious misconduct. Many of these cases involve misunderstandings, clients that are unreliable reporters, gray areas, therapeutic practices that maybe there can be reasonable disagreement or questioning about, but that don't rise to the level of harm. I want to hearken back here to episode eight and my conversation with Ben Feynman and Carrie Wieda of the Very Bad Therapy podcast, because I think their experience with hearing people's stories of bad therapy and what they shared about that with us here is really consistent with what Dr. Zor was describing, that most people's bad therapy experiences are not all that remarkable. They're not usually the chilling, you know, particularly egregious experience experiences with a therapist who is acting in a predatory way or something along those lines. Most people's bad therapy experiences are closer to the kind of perhaps poorly handled therapeutic rupture that most likely all of us have been or will be guilty of at some point in our therapeutic career. So in the majority of these subsequent therapist syndrome cases, we're probably looking at something like that or cases in which the subsequent therapist's theoretical orientation differs dramatically from that of the previous therapists and the subsequent therapist is judging the previous therapist's therapeutic decisions through that lens. So, of course, the question that kept coming up in my conversation with Dr. Zor and which has continued to come up for me as I've been mulling over this topic over the past few weeks is why? Why is this phenomenon? And I'm just going to spell it out again. We are talking about the phenomenon of a clinician being instrumental in a client initiating a board complaint against a previous clinician. Why is this phenomenon so common in our field? And remember, we're talking about somewhere in the neighborhood of half of the licensing board complaints made against therapists. If it's not that the majority of these cases involve obvious and egregious misconduct, which it doesn't seem to be, why are therapists so frequently getting involved in this complaint process against other therapists? And particularly, why is it so common in our field specifically relative to other comparable fields for professions that also involve licensing board complaints? I've been sifting through the possible answers to this question of why, and I should say the possible contributing factors because cause and effect in my view is rarely simple. It's complex and multifactorial as a rule. So I've been sorting through 
what are the contributing factors here to this unique phenomenon in our profession? And of course, the first one that I seized upon was savior complex. And I say, of course, because this is my pet indictment of our field, of people in our field, yours truly included, that we are a bunch of people with savior complexes, meaning that we are by and large the type of person who finds a great deal of security, comfort, and sense of identity in the role of helping, fixing, saving people. And that our reluctance to deal with these traits or tendencies, this personality orientation head on, often has a lot of destructive repercussions, both personally and professionally. So that's why I'm always banging this drum about savior complexes as a driving motivation for actions that we take in this field, including getting into the field in the first place. And so, of course, I'm thinking... How is this showing up as part of this subsequent therapist syndrome phenomenon? My thinking is this. We therapists come to human relationships with this greater than average orientation to help, fix, save. And of course, particularly in our role as therapists, we can all talk a great game about how it's not our job to fix or save the client. It's all holding space for the client to, well, you can fill in the rest. And that's partially true, and it's partially semantics, in my opinion. But the upshot being, if your stuff around helping, fixing, and saving people is not being activated in your relationship with your clients, and in fact, by the very nature of your relationship with your clients, well, either wait five years and come back to me, or go tell your therapist that self-deception is a problem that you struggle with. Or write me an angry email telling me that I'm wrong. I haven't gotten any hate mail yet, and it's kind of a letdown. So we're in the first session with a new client. Our help fix, save people stuff is hanging around the edges of the room, just hovering around waiting to be activated. The new client says something alarming about something their previous therapist did and or said. Boom, savior complex activated because we are already in a room with this person that we feel we need to help. It's been absolutely drummed into us that the client is in a particularly vulnerable role, that therapists are primed by the very nature of the relationship to have a high potential of causing harm. We hear something alarming about something that may have taken place in the context of such a relationship and To me, very easy to see how the subsequent therapists drive to protect or save the client from the previous therapist could be immediately activated there. And of course, the typically sanctioned way of saving or protecting someone from a licensed professional who is causing them harm is to complain or encourage them to complain through proper official channels. I do think it's likely that this is happening, what I just described. But the problem with this, and certainly the obvious problem with it as a sole explanation, is that therapists aren't the only ones with savior complexes. And by that, I mean we are not the only profession that is rife with savior complexes. Doctors, nurses, paramedics, other emergency responders, anyone you could realistically call a helping professional, by the very nature of it, 
those of us who might be said to have a savior complex are attracted to and very much overrepresented in these professions. But as Dr. Zor and I were discussing last time, you don't see a lot of doctors out there encouraging their patients to report on other doctors. You don't see a lot of nurses encouraging patients to report on other nurses. And it's not because folks aren't out there having bad experiences with doctors and nurses and then talking about them. They very much are. So there's something different happening on the clinician end, and it's not that they don't have savior complexes. So I'm letting you off the hook a bit, therapists, or I guess I'm putting those other professions on that particular hook too. Now I want to move on to a couple of factors that Dr. Zor and I discussed quite a bit as contributors to the subsequent therapist syndrome phenomenon. And those are the factors of a risk management oriented approach and of differences in theoretical orientation. At first glance, it might seem a bit odd that I'm introducing these two factors together, right? On the surface, what does risk management really have to do with differences in theoretical orientation? But as I'm really sitting and examining the differences between the other areas of the healthcare field and the mental healthcare field, therapy in particular, what I'm seeing is the likelihood that the increased prevalence of a risk management mentality and the unusually broad range of approaches to client care in our field of therapy may be interacting and synergizing in a unique way that makes contentious professional relationships between clinicians a much more likely result. So, I'll break this down. The rise of a risk management lens and training clinicians into, call it a risk management informed approach to healthcare, that has been ubiquitous across the field of healthcare for the past couple of decades. Risk management is not a therapy specific or mental health specific lens at all. This is very much across the entire world of healthcare that anyone working in any of these fields is subject to a risk management oriented way of conducting client care. And this is another area in which there are a lot of contributing factors ranging from the more altruistic desire to prevent catastrophic client or patient outcomes to the more debatable motivation to save governments or organizations money. Um, in some cases, making them profits, all the way to preventing litigation, which is also usually in a risk management context about saving organizations money. So that's its own whole other dive that I'm not going to take right now. But suffice it to say, anyone entering the healthcare field right now or over the past couple of decades has been exposed to this mentality that our clinical work should always be oriented towards minimizing risk. I don't know that the idea of risk management has to be that reductive, but that's what it often amounts to in practice. And this can be a problematic mentality, right? Because sometimes minimizing risk means that we are not taking worthwhile risks that could have big payoff in benefiting the client. Sometimes minimizing risk means that we are disrespecting the client's autonomy in ways that could be harmful. Sometimes minimizing risk means we are infantilizing or condescending to the client. Balancing risk and reward in therapy and in healthcare as a whole is more complicated than just minimize the risk. And this is an emerging dialogue right now as we continue to move in this direction of more centralized, computerized, algorithmic approaches to healthcare. So 
Dr. Zor identified this trend as a contributing factor, right, to the subsequent therapist syndrome phenomenon. And yet, like the prevalence of the savior complex, the growing prevalence of risk management is something we have in common with these other professions, with doctors, nurses, paramedics, etc. And yet again, we don't see this dynamic of professionals routinely encouraging reporting on one another in these other professions. And here's where I think it's very possible that diversity of theoretical orientation, diversity of therapeutic approach, and risk management mentality may be synergizing. Risk management mentality is, one way to think of it is as a perversion of the idea of first do no harm. Risk management mentality says first, minimize risk. But differences in theoretical orientation give us different ideas of what's risky. And I think a really fantastic illustration of this from within our field is the last couple of episodes, episodes 10 and 11 that I did on exposure therapy for trauma. So on that topic, right, it's very plausible that while I might believe that By doing exposure therapy with a client with PTSD, I'm engaging in best practices and giving them the best chance of recovery. And another clinician might think based on their trauma recovery lens that I'm being frighteningly cavalier. It's a wide variation in how I and this imaginary, but I know you're out there, other clinician think of risk, even if we both were to agree that minimizing risk is the highest good. And that's the unique thing about a field like ours that has such a vast diversity in theory and approach in how we practice our craft. And it's not because medicine doesn't have its schisms. There are plenty of serious, significant disagreements in other areas of healthcare. I mean, take your pick, obstetrics, endocrinology, oncology, the practice of nursing. There are certainly controversies, disagreements, schisms, camps that are in opposition to one another in those fields. We're on another level though, guys. We really are. Just a reminder here that as much as we may rebrand it as behavioral health and try to make everything quantifiable and observable, the core of our work is with human subjectivity. Our job is to work with and manipulate, and I say manipulate in a value neutral way, human consciousness. Consciousness itself is still a scientific and philosophical problem in a way that the material body in all its infinite mystery and complexity simply is not. Maybe someday, centuries down the line, science will open the black box of the mind and understand how the brain and body create the experience of consciousness in such a granular and specific way that doing therapy will look a lot more like doing surgery. Maybe. I know that something like that was my teacher Dave Schnarch's dream, whereas I kind of hope not. But whatever our hopes and imaginings for the scientific future of this field, we are nowhere near that yet. So framed in those terms, the limited agreement that we have come to about what constitutes something like best practices in psychotherapy seems actually like quite an achievement. And the vast areas of disagreement look not just understandable, but inevitable. On that vast, unknowable plane of human consciousness, we create these belief systems about the best way to do our work. I have mine, you have yours, the therapist in the office down the hall has theirs. Belief systems about what's best for our clients, what offers benefit, what's a worthwhile risk, and what's not worth risking. 
And when you combine that diversity of belief around risk with a mentality that minimizing risk is the highest good and add in a dash of savior complex, well, to me, that seems like a pretty potent recipe for this phenomenon of subsequent therapist syndrome. As I go into the last couple of contributing factors I want us to examine, I also want to widen the lens of our attention to not only what is contributing to this phenomenon, but also to what we can do about it. And not what we can do about it from the side of protecting ourselves against these kinds of complaints. I mean, yes, do those things. Absolutely do your due diligence and follow Dr. Zur's suggestions. I think those are very good ideas. But I want to look at what we do about this in the sense of making a healthier professional culture. And as a therapist who works with individuals, does individual therapy, I obviously believe in the power of individual change and the importance of change within ourselves as a potential contributor to positive change in the cultures of which we are a part. So even if you haven't been the subsequent therapist in a case like this, what I'd really like you to look at is where do you maybe have some of these tendencies within yourself? How are you showing up in our professional community in a way that perhaps reinforces or contributes to this kind of dynamic? Aside from our savior complexes, which I think we should all be working on in our own personal therapy and in other realms of our lives, I want to talk about something Dr. Zor and I alluded to last time, which is the tendency to use righteousness and omnipotence as a buttress against uncertainty and powerlessness, as in uncertainty that is intrinsic to the nature of work that takes place in the realm of human consciousness, and the powerlessness that comes with working as a change agent with people who are fundamentally the agents of their own lives and decisions. I'm not going to make broad sweeping statements about human nature, at least not in the same episode where I just referred to the human mind as a black box, but I don't think it's too far out on a limb to say that humans in general don't tend to love feeling uncertain and powerless. And in this work, we are frequently confronted with those existential realities. So when we grasp in compensation for the antidote, an opportunity to feel certain and powerful, we can end up causing, if not harm, then at least a real nuisance for other people, as in these cases of subsequent therapist syndrome. So what I want to do here is offer a different antidote, a different, dare I say, healthier antidote. What I want to offer is the possibility that the antidote to the existential anxiety of uncertainty that we bump up against daily in the course of doing this work is not certainty or the illusion of certainty, but curiosity. As therapists, we know about how powerful, how crucial curiosity is, how it could open up possibilities and pathways that we never would have seen if we hadn't taken the time to follow our noses and sniff around them a bit. We all know that old standby clinical intervention that starts, I wonder what it would be like if, and we know that it's a standby for good reason. We know that some of our most important investigative clinical work takes place when we ask clients questions that seem like they have obvious answers, but when we shine the light of our curiosity on them, it turns out the answers aren't as obvious as they seemed. We can do curiosity. We do it with our clients all the time. So I think we very much have it in us to extend that same kind of 
I'm going to call it respect, to our colleagues in this work by allowing our curiosity to steer the ship a bit in our relationships with each other, too. And in the context we are talking about on this episode, if we're looking at something like subsequent therapist syndrome, that means leading with curiosity about the perspectives of our clients' other therapists, the relationships they've had with our shared clients, and being open to the possibility that we might learn something if we follow that curiosity, even if we don't agree. The second antidote I'd like to offer the antidote to powerlessness, is a bit more of a stretch because it involves collective and not simply individual action. But I think as challenging as it may be, it's essential that we put efforts towards it for a thousand different reasons, the topic we are discussing today being only one, and that antidote to powerlessness that I believe is so much more robust than grasping at those little opportunities here and there to wield power. That antidote is community. Now, I want to get clear about what it is I'm talking about when I use the word community, because it's a concept that seems to just become more and more watered down over time, which I think is quite detrimental to the project of building authentic communities. You know, a group of followers on an Instagram account is not a community, no matter how many influencers talk their game every day about the very special community we have here and things like that. A community, it's not. A Facebook group is not a community. A workplace? Mm, Could be, not usually. A neighborhood? Could be, should be, but not usually. Real communities are vanishingly rare in the context of contemporary American society because the American value of individualism runs counter to the establishment of community in a very powerful and insidious way. And here's what a real community is, in my opinion. A community is a group of people with some kind of group identity that they all value, who are deeply mutually invested in each other's well-being. And I don't mean they just wish each other well. I mean that a community is made up of people who are taking regular, sustained, reciprocal action that demonstrates their investment in each other. And it's my strong belief that part of the litmus test of whether a group is a community or not is the presence of people who don't like each other, yet are demonstrating that same kind of mutual investment and reciprocal care as they are with the people they do like. Because community is not about liking. It's about people investing in each other centered around some shared sense of identity and purpose. And in the context of a professional community, I think that means being invested collectively in our craft, in each other's excellence. Again, I think that contemporary American society is actively hostile to the development of true community. And if we're looking at things in black and white here, I may have set the bar impossibly high. But if we are looking at it more on a spectrum, my sense is that another difference between our subset of the healthcare field and many others is that they have many more of these elements of community than we do. We have the factor of professional isolation working against us. We do not very often get to see each other work. And as much anxiety as the idea of having other therapists seeing us work may provoke, let's think about the repercussions. So when I think about my standout cases, right, the cases where I am the most confident that I really was instrumental in changing a client's life, where I worked hard and my efforts made a clear and significant difference for that client. No one sees that work except me and the client. 
If I have a breakthrough session with a long-term client or something I've been trying to get them to see for years finally sinks in for the first time, if I handle a tricky confrontation with deafness and humor, if I catch something important in a client's trauma narrative that would have been easy to overlook, no one but me sees it and gets it. There's no other professional there to appraise my work as good. And then the corollary is that we also don't get the opportunity to practice giving and receiving appropriate criticism and to see some of our areas of weakness through the eyes of other clinicians. This isn't about adjudication. The point of this to me isn't that we are lacking in opportunities to judge each other. We do that to each other all the time. The point is that we are lacking in opportunities to truly see and be seen by each other. And then to practice mutual investment in each other's well-being and excellence in the face of what we see and what we are seen to be. I'm not saying that the long-term fate of our profession hangs in the balance, but I am sort of saying that the long-term fate of our profession hangs in the balance. So I'm going to ask you as we wrap up now to switch into your curiosity mind and leave you with the following questions. How would my interactions with my fellow therapists be different if I showed up to those interactions with the intention of really seeing them and letting them see me? What would it mean for me to demonstrate investment in the well-being of my fellow therapists? And furthermore, what would it mean for me to maintain that investment in the well-being of my fellow therapists, even when I dislike, disagree with, or I'm disappointed in them. The very last thing I'll leave you with is a bit of a homework assignment. The next time you find yourself in disagreement with a colleague over professional matters, ethical, clinical, procedural, whatever, instead of jumping to that old standby, that's unethical, or couching your disagreement in so many caveats that someone listening to or reading your comment would hardly be able to tell you're having a disagreement in the first place, instead of either of those options, Start your reply with just the following two words. I disagree and see what happens from there. Thank you for being here with me on A Therapist Can't Say That. If you're enjoying the show, please do rate, review, and follow us on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on. And I especially hope you will continue to share the show with your therapist friends, your therapists, and anyone you know who wants to get real about therapy and the weird work that we do. As always, you can find me, Reva Stout, at IntoTheWoodsPortland.com. I very much welcome your feedback on the topics we are discussing here. And of course, your own, a therapist can't say that moments. So if you have something you would like to share with me, please get in touch. Shoot me an email or send me a voice note at Reva at IntoTheWoodsPortland.com. Talk to you next time.